Welcome to The Afterglow. The Afterglow podcast gives women, we're talking to you, the permission and tools to live life according to your own rules. Yes, this is a platform to educate and empower women identifying humans through intriguing conversations with courageous Canadian women who are breaking down limiting beliefs and outdated rules. These women have done it, are doing it, or can provide tools for you to do the same. We are Julie Watson and Liz Doyle-Harmer. And we started Afterglow, our yoga studio, after years of staying home to raise kids. Now, as podcasters, we want to help others do the same. Step into your own power. It's time to shake things up and get real about who you are and what you want. The Afterglow is your next act. It's what came after you did what you were told and instead decided to do what was in your heart. It's how you have reinvented yourself. It's your vision for the next 40 to 50 years. It's when you took your power back. Welcome to the Afterglow. On today's episode, I am honored to host a dear friend of mine, Dr. Rhonda McEwen. Rhonda is a Canada Research Chair in Tactile Interfaces, Communication and Cognition, and is an Associate Professor of New Media and Communication. Dr. McEwen is the Director of the Institute of Communication, Culture, Information and Technology at the University Toronto, Mississauga. With an MBA in IT from City University in London, England, and MSc in Telecommunications from the University of Colorado, and a PhD in Information from University of Toronto, Dr. McEwen combines communication studies, applied, and behavioral sciences to examine the social and cognitive effects of technologies. Her pioneering approach to communication research employs experimental techniques, eye tracking, observations, sensor data, and interviews to investigate human-machine communication involving children and adults across the user spectrum and including those diagnosed with communication and learning disorders. Dr. McEwen has worked with and researched digital communications media for over 20 years, both in companies providing services and in management consulting to those companies. Journalists from CBS News Magazine 60 Minutes covered McEwen's research in 2012 and 2013, and she has recent publications in Information, Communication and Society, Computers and Education, Learning and Instruction, New Media and Society, and in Library and Information Science Journals. Understanding Tablets from Early Childhood to Adulthood is her recently co-authored book. Side note, when we recorded this interview, the announcement had not yet been made, but Rhonda, Dr. Rhonda McEwen, is now the Vice Principal Academic and Dean of U of T Mississauga. Rhonda! You. Look that at that great. gorgeous I woman. Know. Look at that face. <laughs> Look at you two. Look Aww. at us. Aww, All nice together. To see you. Well, we're happy to have you. Dr. Ronta McEwen. Doctor. I, I must confess that um, for our listeners, we're already recording, by the way. For our listeners, um, it's it's interesting for me to call you Dr. McEwen because we're such old friends that most of our texts look like sister, you know, meet you at the restaurant. Or I think my last one was like, dude, are you, are you looking forward to our chat on Monday or whatever? So, so, um, so when I see it, when I see your name, Dr. Rhonda McEwen, I'm, it, I'm always like, yes, <laughs> yes, she is. You have smart well, friends. So funny. <laughs> so funny you say that because, you know, it's uh, I, 
well, my professor a lot because I'm at the university and we're all pretty much doctor this or that. Um, but uh, with the discussion of uh, Dr. Jill Biden and sort of this really interesting debate about whether academics should carry the title doctor and be addressed as doctor um, and sort of someone, you know, facetiously saying, no, she's not a medical doctor and whatever. I actually went back and did a little research and found out that doctor was actually the name given to academics. It was always mm-hmm. first an academic. And then medical doctors who were known as um, MDs, not doctors, they, they decided to take it as well. And so, you know, going back a few hundred years, it's, uh, it's changed it just in the, in the social psyche of it, that doctor should mean a medical doctor, whereas I guess uh, generations ago, it was the opposite. So, so interesting, right, how mm-hmm. words change. And, and um, you know, I d- I've been very dismissive about the title, but ever since reading about how um, Dr. Biden has to kind of fight for the right for people to call her by her title. And since, you know, I'm like, okay, then we all should make sure we are using our title mm-hmm. in our formal scenarios, right? Mm-hmm. So interesting. Well earned. It's rightfully yeah. yours. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think we want to just kind of like go back to, you know, the very beginning, little Rhonda growing up in Trinidad. Uh, you know, you, you, you grew up in Trinidad, you're um, spent time at an all girls school, right? You were in the STEM program. So tell us a little bit about like what the culture was like in that environment growing up, like in Trinidad, but also at an all girls school. Right? Yeah. So in Trinidad, and it's still pretty much the same this way. You know, education is, first of all, highly, highly respected. Um, Yet uh, one of the structural issues is that sort of decisions are made very early. So you're about 11. And I don't know if you recall being 11 and just how, you know, sorted out your life was at 11. Um, You know, you you sit this exam. It's changed to be more of a school-based assessment, but still same age. It's the same point. And there's an assessment and a determination of your academic ability at that point um, based on these data points. And so in my case, back then, it was one exam. And so you do this one exam and you have to set four schools that you're interested in going to depending on how well you do. And so you pick your first choice, second, third, fourth. And, uh, you know, in my case, it's really interesting because I came back from the U.S. My parents did their bachelor's and master's degrees in Wisconsin. And we came back just as I should have been doing the exam. So it was not great timing that way for me because coming out of the U.S. system back into the British system, I crossed two different curriculum setups, right? So in the U.S., and it's still pretty much that way, metric wasn't very heavily used. In the British system, it was that's all they used, not imperial. So the math um, I was really struggling with some of that because, you know, my friends were all singing about decameters and hecameters. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that is not I still don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the big thing to take away from that is that you go to an oral girls school, you don't, there's no such thing as what girls do well at that point. Now all subjects are open and everybody else is doing the same subject. So you don't, you don't come in with a mindset about STEM that I think unfortunately does permeate in 
in other environments, um, you know, you're competing with the girl next to you or the one behind you, not there's no one else. It's only girls. So, you know, I went into science and uh, so I went to science, although I did have the ability to stay with literature, which is great and a language. So kind of that humanities, um, social science and science, although I did weight heavily into science. Um, and I did science because I wanted to wear a lab coat. I know this is like so shallow. <laughs> well, my next question was going to be, why did you stay in the sciences where some <laughs> girls, you know, they 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 start to lose their, um, you know, confidence and stuff like that. And now we know it's because of know. the lab coat. <laughs> the lab coat. It was all, it was a fashion decision. Let's, uh, let's say that. Um, we wore a uniform and the girls who were in chem and bio got to wear their lab coats and you know they'd unbutton it and then they'd walk about and it would flap and it was just so cool right like look at, look at these girls in their chem lab coats anyway so I did start chemistry chemistry I loved right off the bat <clears throat> I love uh, I still I don't know if I have a, a show and tell you can't see it because of podcasts but I do have my periodic table um, that sits on my desk still um, looking at the elements uh, and I love experiments so I love the sciences. I just enjoyed exploring, finding out new things. As I said, no one told us we weren't supposed to be good at math. We were told we were going to be good at math because our teachers were mostly, except for chemistry, um, women. Um, so they were women in STEM already as our role models. Um, and so we just didn't know that it was a thing where you wouldn't be good at it. So we just did it. And um yeah, and to this day, I mean, I, I did go on to stay in, in technology. So I'm still in STEM, focused mostly on te on technology sectors and in doing work on technologies. And I do notice that if I am teaching a class in tech, I see more girls and young women come into my classes. I see more um, people of color and Black students gravitate to my classes. And, and there's something about representation um, in general that does send a signal um, that you belong here. Look, if this person can do it, it's likely you can do it. Um, and I, I think it has made a difference. So, I mean, what you said, it's, it's so interesting how um, there was no um, just, you know, second guessing yourself or feeling like you didn't belong because you were in a, an all female environment, but you were also in an all black environment, right? So from that point of view, there was no messaging of, you know, you were seeing black people in leadership positions. That's right. Um, my, uh, as I said, not, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's not to be understated, not just were our our teachers, um, either black or um, uh, East Indian uh, origins, you know, Trinidadians of color, but so were the other girls ahead of us, right? Like, so the prefects, the head girls, the, you know, the, the classes before us, you know, it's not like you were the first of anything. Mm. So there was never an understanding that there was a gendering or a racialization of of academic progress or ability. So we just kind of just did it. Now, now that I'm here and, uh, you know, I, I was in England before this and in the U.S. for some time, too, I can see that it does change. It does put doubt. Uh, into your mind doubt is one part of it but also lack of encouragement um, uh, and that can be subtle or it can be very you know very obvious but if if there are no female scientists being discussed in your classroom even you know not everyone has the 
um, who makes the choice or has the luxury to be in either a gendered uh, educational environment like I was in or in a, ma- a majority environment. But I, I think you can change the curriculum. I think it, there's a way to battle it through in curriculum to say, let's open the curriculum up so that people are reading and hearing from and learning from scientists and technologists and mathematicians who are outside of what you see in front of you and around you, um, which is why the movie, right? Um, the Hidden Figures made such an impact. Uh, it really did, I think, blow people's minds to know that uh, even, because I think people think it's a kind of a modern phenomenon that you have pretty good uh, people of color, black people, women in these areas, but it's, we've always been here, right? Uh, Madame Curie has always been one of my sort of heroes. As a, she's a, two, a two-time, um, winner of uh of massive awards one in science once one in chemistry and one in physics i believe but she this is turn of the century right and mm. you know a woman with a family in a lab i mean she wasn't even allowed to go to university uh, and so she battled through with her just her passion on this i feel oh very much so privileged to have grown up in a country where um i was allowed to see those examples um, and and be around black excellence from the get go, not questioning that that was a real thing or having to prove it. Like I didn't even feel I had something to prove because everybody else was pretty much the same or similar. Um, so and here I see my students wanting to prove and working doubly and triply hard to prove themselves. I think what you're saying about representation, um, particularly in, you know, the elementary schools is so important right now. And, and I think we've heard a lot about it over this past year, in particular with BLM and even in Canada with, you know, Indigenous um, history and how, you know, history has been sort of shifted to suit certain, you know, cultures expectations of what they want, right, to have people hear of, of what they want to have put out there. So I think that that's a really important thing that you're saying right there. And um, on the the note about, you know, your role model with uh, Madame Curie and potentially other role models, I know you mentioned your mom. And we couldn't talk about you and your upbringing. And as I mentioned, because I know you and your, and your family, we could not not speak about your mom, Earlene, who is just uh, a, a remarkable woman. And um, tell us about her impact on you. She, my mom is a, an incredible impact. She's had an incredible impact on me. I feel too that she's been like, uh, I've had to share her my whole life, which is amazing because she's so, she's so, um, she's so incredible that it wasn't like, let's just keep her for myself mm-hmm. in our house. Um, it was, I was always, always like, you, you know, telling my friends, you have to meet my mom. You've got to come and talk to her and she's always been so generous um my mom is a um she has a bachelor's and master's degrees she's a she's a creative person she's in textile and and design and fashion uh, so she did her degrees that way um and she so i grew up with this mom who was um, an educator herself but who was highly educated uh, my dad also um similarly he did his master's degree at the same time so I kind of came from this super um, academic household Um, but as a woman I think my mom really was able to demonstrate I mean she had me and my my brother who was only a baby while she was doing her two degrees it so turns out um, that happened with me in my PhD right I had um, my daughter and then my son while doing my PhD 
Um, and uh, yeah, she set the example very clearly. Like and you could do it. Yeah, that is possible. I, that's, what, that's what I'm hearing. I'm getting the impression that you just grew up in this very like rich, fertile environment, right? With these parents who, you know, who had your back and who told you you could do it and were modeling excellence and the school that modeled like black excellence as well as feminine excellence. And so those were your formative years, which is amazing because those neural pathways, they, you know, they last a lifetime. And then you go to England um, and it's a different environment. And so I'm curious, was it, did you have culture shock when you went to England? How was that for you? Oh my goodness, for sure. Right. So you, I've just painted this picture that you so, um, in a, so wonderfully summarized. And then I go to England to find out that people think people from my country are like, like, um, lesser somehow or you know I'm from the developing or, or underdeveloped it was called at the time mm. I was from an underdeveloped country and um and there was almost like weird um pity but like uh, or, or 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 shock at the fact that you know here I was on this I was on a British um commonwealth scholarship called achievement award and I was just so it was kind of disorienting right because it was like almost people trying to retell my story which mm -hmm. made no sense to me right I'm like but except no I had a computer at home <laughs> mm -hmm. you know we did have a video game like these are things that happened there now not to say everyone in Trinidad had that scenario but we weren't we were not wealthy I didn't grow up in a ton of wealth like sort of as I tried to explain a, a place where education is highly valued isn't necessarily the same as saying you know super wealthy so we were middle class and you know lived in a nice neighborhood and but no different to probably the people who were speaking to me so it was sort of this adjustment to re to understand how I was now being viewed and also I was now a minority right and a black minority and in London England um, black minorities uh, had, have a particular history um, given you know in the 1960s there was a sort of um, influx of Caribbean people to London, mainly to take up uh, jobs like nursing and things like that. And so there was like this, that stereotype of a Caribbean person. And obviously Jamaicans were highly, um, or maybe more represented than Trinidadians were. So I, it was very, a lot of work, a lot of work saying, reorient people, reorienting people like, no, actually. But I, I, if I have a, a really high tolerance for, um, for, giving people time to get to a, a place, you know, mm -hmm. so realizing that you're somebody, this person I'm talking to isn't where I am on this and I need to give them time to get there. Well, I think that, that the support is what you're talking about is key in, in anybody's success, right? Knowing that you have that support. Um, and speaking of support, you, you met your husband who was, uh, you were working together when you were in London and you'd started working there. Um, and this is after you got your MBA in London. And then after you got your MSc in telecommunications at the University of Colorado. So you're like an eternal student. This is like the opposite to what I want to be doing, but you're an eternal student. And so, so you guys decide together that you're both going to move back to Canada and you're going to come and live in Toronto. Correct. And so when you came back to Canada, I mean, I imagine you'd already sort of adjusted to this sort of culture shock and, and the differences in, in racism and even feminism that you experienced growing up. But you started working, you were working in the business sector in a consulting firm. And 
then all of a sudden, and this is like just, I mean, I, I knew you closely at the time. And so I, I could see the process happening, but you decide to go get your PhD now at U of T. And so I'm curious about, and this feels like, um, and I don't know if you've, if you've read um, Glennon Doyle's latest book, Untamed, but she talks about that inner knowing, like that you, you know yourself. And I believe that you've always had that inner knowing, like just knowing you, I, I feel like you've always had that inner knowing, but where did you, where do you get that inner knowing you're in this like really cushy job, right? You're in a, a beautiful city. You guys have a nice house, you know, you're, you're having children. Like, where does that come from where you're like, you know what, I'm just going to now, I'm just going to totally change my career and go and get my PhD and pursue something totally different. Like that to me is, um, you know, people would be like, well, that's stupid or, but to me, that's like bravery. That's like, that's like bravery. That's like, you know what, actually I'm not completely satisfied with my life right now. I'm going to turn, I'm going to turn around in the other direction and go and do something else. Like, where did that come for you? Where did that inspiration strike you? So I, as a consultant, both in London, in England and here in Toronto, one of the things I kept noticing is that there was always like, 10 more questions I had that I would have liked to answer. But when you're, when you're working for a client, you know, the, the, the boundaries are pretty much set, right? They would like you to work on this thing for this amount of time. This is what you're helping with. So, you know, it, it would be like saying you went to, you went to, um, I don't know, to your doctor and you said, this is what I'd like worked on. Doctor's like, yeah, but I want to talk about these other things over here. Like <laughs> there are some professions where you literally can go past the boundary a lot easier. And for me, um, you know, I, I knew research, like I, I did research as a consultant, but being able to be a researcher really seemed exciting for me because I wanted to drive the question asking, right? I didn't want to always have the, the question given to me to solve it, which I'm, I was good at. But I also wanted to, I wanted to craft the question myself. So you know, you're right. Like it, it ever, many people told me it was a silly thing to do, right? Like they're like, why? You know, you have everything, it's all set. <clears throat> and I just kept thinking, but inside that, that inner knowing, I knew I wasn't satisfied. It wasn't, a, and it was, you know, the biggest concern that most people raised with me was the money. You know, I was earning um, quite a good salary. I was moving up the ranks very quickly. My um, outlook, as a consultant was quite bright where I would get to how fast I would get there. And a mutual friend of ours um, said to me, you know, uh, Julie, that uh, why would you want to do, why would you want to be a prof? Like, it's like, like almost like it was just not something exciting or interesting. Um, And I, I, I didn't even really care (laughs) anybody else because I knew within myself that, that I would, I probably would love it. And I didn't know for sure, right? Regardless, I knew that I wanted to get the PhD. Um, it was a, a, it's the terminal degree. It's the end one. A, and I, it's kind of like, for me inside, I like to finish a thing. So for me, like for education was like that, one of those things, I wanted to finish it. And I didn't think I was finished. I felt I still had things to do and things to learn. And, and I wanted to learn this thing, these things. So I did, I went back. Um, I I will tip my hat here to um, my my husband who is uh, was also a consultant at the time as you said who basically said to me 
when I raised it, like, I think I want to go back and do a PhD. And he's like, I always knew you would. Right. And we had oh. never had that conversation. Like we never talked about it. Um, but he, he just said, I always knew you would, and you should absolutely do it. I'm, I'm curious what you said about um, you wanted to ask the questions, right? You wanted, it's almost, it was like an empowering way almost of uh, just taking charge of your own curiosity and, uh, you know, creative intelligence and, and seek me, driving it into funneling it into things you really care about. So I'm curious, what are there overarching questions? Is there a big question you're trying to answer with your work? Yes. So no matter what project I take on, I think the one that sits, I keep coming back to is how, so I, I call it communication and cognition, but how do the communication technologies that we are either using or seeing in use or becoming quite popular in our everyday um, society, how does it affect um, how we think and how we, um, how we intuit? How does it affect us? but not just from an external point of view, but from the internal point of view. Um, and so sometimes that, that comes about uh, in terms of a project around learning and uh, learning using technology, because learning obviously is part of cognition, um, but sometimes it's about sense fencing and sensory work. So some of my work is on sensory processing, how we process um, technologies that we are interacting with using our senses um, as predominant inputs. So touch technologies, or virtual reality, where we're, we're in this other space in our, in our mind. Um, so I'm really interested in those two parts that haven't always come together or come together in a different kind of way. But thinking about how we as humans and as, you know, how does humanity deal with machines? Mm -hmm. um, and that relationship is now it's sort of embedded and intertwined uh, versus seeing it as a sort of a user and a tool kind of perspective. I remember when you were actually doing your PhD and um, your study was on how the use of cell phones um, either helped or hindered building relationships. And I think you did like first year students at U of T and Ryerson. And so, so I, I don't even know what the results were, but I would love it if you could share what the results were of that study and kind of, you know, how it then impacted your studying further, your research further. So that was such great timing. Um, it was 2007 when I did my data collection. And 2007, just to remind everyone, it's, it's the, the big technology, the mobile technology was the BlackBerry. Um, it was so keyboard-based still, although still tactile, but not, not touch. The iPod Touch um, had just kind of launched and had been sitting around for a bit, but the, the actual iPhone launched in 2008 in Canada. So it had launched in the U.S. the year before. So my study was just on that tipping point before we turned to the, most of the devices that are in use now. And I was really interested in how these devices either were portals or barriers to, to, to creating relationships with the people around us. Um, and what I found, uh, and I, I, I mean, I was studying first years, right? So part of it was transitions. How do you transition? You're doing a lot in that first year, right? Transitioning. Sometimes you're out of your home, you're moving to university. Sometimes you're in the home, but attending university. In other cases, you're going into work while studying. So I was working with this kind of population. And what I found is that many people, this, the, the mobile phone was actually being used to 
it was hampering. It was it was damaging um, the ability for us to build networks, um, social networks. And it was controversial finding at that time because, you know, there was this idea that social media was starting to take off. It wasn't, you know, quite as dominant as it is now. But certainly MySpace, you know, all these kinds of things, Facebook was just kind of getting getting set, settled into people's uh, use, usage patterns. And people felt like they were really connected and, you know, that they were expanding their networks everywhere. But what I found is that in the proximate environment, in our actual physical location, we, what students were doing was they were using the phone to keep attached to their high school networks and their home networks. And not spending that time with the new people in their current environment. So they would kind of wall themselves off and recreate as much as they could the the world they knew before. Mm. Um, And it took a year, Uh, you know, many times it took, you know, resident students did better, for example, than students who were commuting um, because they were then forced into activity with their, with their, the people they were with. But if, and the, Many of our campuses are still commuter campuses. So people live at home and commute in for school. And it was hurting their ability to find themselves, to relocate themselves in a new environment and to let go or to expand. Maybe not so much let go, but expand themselves into a new environment. It's such a, I mean, there's such a loss in that. That's my perspective anyways. You know, my first year was such a rich time for making new friends. And, you know, that's how how old we are. We, (laughs) This is letting you know that this was pre-cell phone time. Yes, pre-cell phone, for sure. You know, that first year experience was so rich. Um, and so you, this was, you know, uh, 2007, before the use of touch screens, before the, you know, the rampant increase in social media. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious um, whether you have any data or even um, best guesses as to how things are now in terms of technology and this ability to support or hinder our relationships? Yes. And, you know, I keep threatening to run that study one more time right now, but we do have other studies that have been looking at similar things. And what we do see is that it's, you know, it's actually not improved, right? Mm -hmm. It got worse. Um, It got way worse. Um, And a, a lot of, a lot of what we work at, I think as university educator now is, trying to expose students to that. I don't think they're aware all the time of what they've, what, what they're doing. It's not intentional. It's not like somebody's going out and saying, oh, I really don't want to talk to anybody. So I'm going to do this. But what I, what the research is now showing is that in, when I gathered data, they, people had gotten their cell phones late. So they were around 17. They were just heading to university. They had just gotten their phone. Um, within, I would say, five years, four to five years, that dropped back significantly. So people in middle school, it became middle school going from grade eight to grade nine that mm-hmm. you had to have a phone and you had to, and then it starts dropping lower, right? Mm-hmm. And what's happened is over time, um, yeah, and it's, it's a simple, it's so funny how this happens. If I upgrade my phone, uh, then I think, oh, I have a phone. I have an old one. So I can just give it to, the, to somebody else in my household, Right. And we just kind of let that spiral. I think in the um, 10 years after my studies, so around 2017, 2018, it, it, then we started seeing new studies about how detrimental this was for mm-hmm. younger people. Um, we saw, started seeing a lot of conversation about screen time and difficulties parents were having managing 
sort of um, a word I don't like is addiction <clears throat> in this because I think addiction actually means something else. And addiction, I don't like that the word gets watered down a little bit here because it's not actually neurologically the same. Yet, what we, what we mean when we say it is over-reliance and, and almost inability to, to, to break away from because you're so interested and so saturating. Um, so what that led to was research I did for, I went back into neuro, the um, sort of neurodiverse population again. I did some work with autism, but I went in to do some work with um, ADHD and um, work that attention, attentional control is a marker for um, learning. You must have the ability to harness your attention mm -hmm. in order to learn. And people with attentional deficits have a harder time. And it's not really that they're not meaning to, that's their neurology, but they have a harder time holding attention for longer periods of time. Yet these the same these same um these same people will be able to fall into um sort of video games or you know social media or um you know TikTok, YouTube, you name it, all of the Vimeo, all of the streaming services and almost lose track of time. Mm -hmm. They lose track of their sense of am I hungry? Do I need to use a washroom? Like you know, mm -hmm. physiological. Um, markers are are lost, and so I was really interested in why is this happening? Why is it hard to hold attention? Yet we can lose them to almost inability to get away. So deep attention, shallow attention, learning, and things like that. So I've done some work on that, um, basically showing that bringing things like iPad <clears throat> into a classroom is a disservice to people with attentional deficits, and they have a very hard time finding the cogent information. Um, that is being presented to them. They get lost in some of the visuals and the gaming aspects. And the, so they, they, they miss the germane content. Um, and so, you know, really there was a moment, uh, you might remember it, it was like around 20, let's say like 2014, where people were like iPads for everyone, you know, computers in every school. And, and um, you know, a lot of the research now is kind of like, actually, yes, but, for some students, this isn't the right answer. We need to figure out how to help them so that they don't get further um, lost in the system. Mm -hmm. You're now the director of the Institute of Communication, Culture, Information, and Technology at U of T Mississauga. And you are a professor of new media and communications. So you're doing a lot of work, a lot of research in different technologies, different types of communication, which is so interesting. And you mentioned um, that you were doing some research on autism and your sweet, beautiful daughter was born on the autism spectrum. And so I wonder if, if you had already started down this path before she was born. I guess not when I think about the timeline, but right. was this what, was this what drew you to starting to sort of dive deeper into this area of research? If it did, it was all on the subconscious level. I mean, I've been uh, I've been working in really with mobile phones, phones, telephony from my master's. That was kind of my my trajectory, um, and then it, no, it was a teacher. So our daughter was in. JK. She was attending a special a special needs school. And her teacher just said to me in passing, it was completely in passing. Oh my gosh, every time I take out my iPod, like these kids go, it's, it's amazing. Like everybody lights up and it's like a whole thing. And we're like laughing about it. And then I went home and I'm back processing it. Right. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> like maybe there's a question here actually. Um, and why is it that this, this is the one thing that seems to be kind of really capturing 
his attention. And then I was working on attention already cognitively. So then I started thinking, actually, maybe there is a question here. So I went back to the teacher and I said, would you, would you engage with me on a research project? And would you be like my research assistant? I could, and she was like, I could that. I'm like, yes, you can. And um, so I trained a bunch of teachers. We went into this project um, and, you know, I was saying I, to a, a group of re- methods, research methods students that I had to anonymize all the participants before even the data got to me because my daughter was in some may or may not have been in the study. Mm-hmm. So, and I couldn't let my bias be uh, a determinant. So I didn't know who I was looking at when I'd see the data. And it took us, it was a long project. It was a year long, but for the first, I would say four weeks, we saw no change, nothing. After week six is when we started seeing some really interesting improvements. And that taught me a lesson right away that, you know, we're in an age of quick, 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 let's get it through. And some, some things you need time and they, they require long researcher time. And I say this to funders as well, like don't expect results in a quarter. That's a coming out of the business world, right? Whereas fundamental researchers know that sometimes the research does take time before we start seeing any result. And thank goodness we did, you know, I did have the time because we saw some great results. And it was the first time the study had been done in the world. But um, looking at that, um, uh, it, I would say my daughter wasn't a driver for the research in a conscious way, but clearly, um, you know, the environment, having her in a school where teachers were really switched on and willing to do research as well with me, certainly where there would be no project without, um, without all of that. Mm. You also have another role at U of T that you were just um, awarded recently, um, the Special Advisor on Anti-Racism and um, Equality at U of T Mississauga. So tell us about that role. That role is, uh, is, was the brainchild of the now vice, pres- vice president and principal at UTM, Alex Gillespie, who's a, she's a digital humanities um, professor who's now leading our campus. And she's amazing because she sees the world in, you know, in a really rich way. She, 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 she brings that humanities perspective to everything she does. And right from the get-go, as soon as she was put in place, she created this role. And so my role is an advisor to her, and um, I work with um, faculty, students, um, staff at the campus and across the tri-campus with colleagues now in the other two campuses. We work to really look for areas where we can make a difference in terms of um, anti-racism and equity work across the campuses because you see them an old institution Mm -hmm. um, and like all of these institutions unfortunately you know as it comes as it as it came to being things kind of roll in the way that they were historically right and here we are in two of the most vibrant cities Mississauga and Toronto in Canada diverse Mm -hmm. yet we didn't have um, um we don't still we're working on it have a very diverse faculty our staff are not as diverse as we needed to so we're not really reflecting a student body nor are we reflecting the broader community. Mm. And so um, for those that are there, our work is to promote their uh, excellence and their success. And we also want to attract people to um, UFT. And I also, I do a lot of work for students, prospective students who don't ever see themselves as a UFT person, just kind of full circle to where we started. 
um, to let them have that representation, to see that we are here, that we are, there are Black people of color, Indigenous faculty at the university who are just excited to meet them and to, to share our experiences and our knowledge with them and to encourage them. Um, and also to share this knowledge with our white allies um, who there are many on the campuses who support our work and chip in to, to really help undo some of the structural um, racism pieces that exist. I love what you said before um, in talking about how you like to sort of give people a chance, right? You hear something and then you're like, are they, are they, why are they not at the place that I'm at yet? And maybe they just need, need more time. And, and Liz and I were actually just speaking about this before about um, particularly in racism, but in a lot of other areas right now that we're struggling with in the world, but in bringing people in as opposed to calling people out, right? right. There's, there's the difference. And it really sounds like you're focused on that. And in doing that, where do you see like the possibilities for change? What, what do you see the possibilities are in this area? I, I see the possibilities and I'm, I, I see it. I, honestly, I, I, I'm, I'm not just joking. I see changing day by day. I see change, right? And a, a small thing. So we had a lecture, um, UTM sponsors, there's a Schneider lecture, which is a, this was an endowment for a, like a public lecture series. And it was this idea of like a town and gown, right? Like the university shouldn't be closed away and we should be open to the communities around us. So we introduce, we bring in a public speaker and we, we have them speak and we have it go far and wide. And last year, the committee, and I sit on the committee, um, the committee chose Robin Maynard. If you haven't heard of Robin Maynard, she is a phenomenal um, researcher, uh, an advocate, an activist. She, um, her talk, though, was titled Abolish the Police, Abolish the whatever. It was a very, very spicy topic. Um, so just from the get-go, just from her naming. And this was happening um, just around the George Floyd, right? So just after that period. So it was already quite a volatile time. So we issue, we, we, we agree in the committee, we're going to do this. And we put it out there and we started getting like some negative feedback, right? From people in the public who were like, UFT should not be, you know, encouraging these kinds of things, all these kinds of uh, upset. And we reconvened as a committee and we said, what do we do? And it was never, what do we do? Should we change it? Should we change the title? Should we change the speaker? That was out of the question. We knew we were going to do this. Um, and we decided, okay, then we have to make sure the forum is available for people to share their ideas and their concerns and their worries. And uh, we did the whole media thing. We did all the communication. We wrote donors, alumni. You know, we had current students were, were concerned. The talk um, attracted uh, 1,700 registrations um, across. And because it was online for the first time, because of the pandemic, it was global. Um, we had uh, a phenomenal turnout on the day and then people watched the video that's available um, after. And I have to say that the comments after and during were so progressive. People said, you know, I'm glad I came and I listened. I didn't think of it that way. I kind of let the headline take me somewhere mm -hmm. um, I shouldn't have. And it's that work, right? Every day, moving, the, moving up a step further. Um, every activity we do in anti-racism will raise negative, negative feelings. Um, it's highly emotional um, for some people, not everyone. Um, and we have to make space for those people uh, to have 
to have that feeling um, and to have to, to raise their concern without instantly being defensive and negative about it. Um, sometimes they're they're incorrect and they've been fed very bad information, right? And sometimes it's a matter of listen, that's actually not how it was. Um, I just saw something on social media the other day where someone was saying that Maya Angelou um, what would be rolling in her grave uh, because of Kamala Harris's appointment um, because Kamala Harris is a is pro LGBTQ2S plus and I thought that person doesn't know Maya Angelou <laughs> who was a massive advocate for that community so and you know little by little I think it's we we all play a part but I think cancel culture and shutting people down is possibly not the way to do it. People um, move from a very emotional place. Um, sometimes you can't change people and they need, they will take a much longer time. It's not going to be one conversation. You shouldn't expect that one exchange in a social media chat is going to work for some people and that's okay. And you have to realize that that's okay. Um, but I see progress. I see progress in the appointments that are being made. The number of, um, the number of people who are, t- the fact that the conversations are happening. Um, I see progress in, um, in so many small areas as well, little things where people are starting to recognize that gender, uh, gender is not, is, is a construct and that we, we have to open up our ideas that were set for us about these kinds of things. Um, whether or not you agree with it or not, the idea is to let it percolate and to want to have the conversation. Um, and I think that's that's all signs for me of progress. Mm. I just I'm just drawn to how you know you've lived you lived half your life uh, almost I don't know exactly the age you were when you went to England but in this fertile rich you know black female excellent environment and then half in you know England Canada the United <laughs> States where there's anti-black racism and you know there's uh patriarchy and you know there's good there's good stuff too but um you know and then you seem to have this way of not letting that external stuff um, erode your own inner confidence and value. And so, you know, is that just, does that come easy to you? Is there something you have to do around that? Do you have any tips you could share? <laughs> I think it. I think for sure you're, you're right. Um, coming from that place where, as you say, in your old pathways were kind of built uh, in that way, my mom's a spiritualist as well, right? So um, I'm a scientist and she's a spiritualist. She's mm-hmm. a creative and I'm an intellectual, like a much more rational thinker. Uh, I was so raised though to see the value and the amazing that that may not be who I am, but I respect and I get it that that she has something that I can only aspire to to, and achieve, to achieve and see that as an amazing a place to try and get to as a goal. I think that's, that helps to see that there are different kinds of people and there's room for different people around. Um, being mm. in a, here um, in, these, in countries that have these, where I am a minority and I have to grapple with these issues. Um, I think very often I've been blessed with um, also gathering around me people who are interested genuinely, if they're not, if they don't know, they're genuinely interested in learning more about you know, me, where I'm from, my perspectives on things. Um, and that's, that's huge, right? That makes a big difference that there, there, there are conversations. Um, and I, and my own family of four here, um, we are a biracial family or multiracial family. We have um, many areas. So we have neuro, <laughs> neurodiversity, 
ethnic diversity. Um, you know, uh, we have all of these components, and uh, and I think it's been a little nice little um, petri dish or crucible to keep <laughs> to keep fertilizing um, a hopeful feeling. And I will say that I understand when my black colleagues who are Canadian born or U.S. born and raised are not as patient. Um, I do not. Um, I don't, I'm not, it doesn't change my view of them. I, I, I highly respect their position. They've come through a very different path where, you know, they had to hide things um, for much longer that things that, you know, that they believed in was not believed more broadly and made their conditions less rich. Mm-hmm. And their impatience is part of the progress. We need that too. Mm-hmm. We need people who are like not good enough, right we need to fix this today i am enraged Mm -hmm. um but i i I am here maybe to help support them as an ally too because i see that i have had less less time to be impatient if you will Mm -hmm. right and so i can support them when they're tired um and there's fatigue right so i can step up and and help out Mm. it is beautiful um as you know the podcast is called the afterglow and um, we determine the afterglow is kind of like the next step or your next step or, you know, what's next for you, what's next for the world. So we're curious to know what your afterglow is and, and what you want for the world. Wow, it's a great question. Um, I think my afterglow is uh, I, I love being an academic. I love um, this is where I'm happiest. Uh, I love the research that I do. Um, and I'm going to keep doing that. I do see, however, that my consulting experience is coming back <laughs> because academics are not necessarily known for great management. And um, in this post-pandemic or current and post-pandemic time in the next few years, we're going to need the skill sets maybe that I had honed then, now. Um, so I probably will be drawing more on my risk management experience, my management of organizations to change um, these kinds of, you know, sort of business, the founding things that are needed in the university. Uh, I see that in my role in the anti-racism and equity work that change, that my change management perspective is very helpful. So I expect that I will probably be drawn in to more of the sort of administrative side of the university. Um, and my afterglow, you know, to see, to see um, everything unfold right now. I think we just we're experiencing a moment that history will look back on as a pretty pivotal time for us in the world globally. And I think my afterglow is just an honor to and hopefully have the health and the, the mental well-being to be here and to experience this time um, and watch the world unfold uh, in a different way with a lot more. Um, I'm very hopeful about the respect that and the attention that people are playing, the uprisings in the U.S. really, for me, are endemic of that change in progress, right? This is, you know, as, as you start changing, you, you do, you have to let go of some of, some of what's out there. And that's, that, that, that comes up for me is actually a healthy sign. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that we have enough people now. The pandemic gave us time to listen. And a lot of people listened when they normally would not have. And I think enough Good people have listened, and I think good things are coming. Absolutely, that's 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 beautiful. Also, and I'm just scanning our list of questions, and Julie put one on here that we haven't asked yet. Should we be scared of robots? <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. So my work in robots. I work on human machine communication. 
Um, so what I see, what I, what I see, should we be scared of robots? <laughs> well, I think robots are scared of us um, as well. But I, what I would say is maybe not scared, but we should be aware that the future that is coming is going to, we are going to be working alongside robots much more. We have them in our homes, Alexa and Google Homes and mm-hmm. all the rest. They're already here listening to us. I didn't think of those as robots. Yeah. So we call them virtual um, assistants, but they are voice-assisted robots. They just don't have the form. So robots um, actually don't have to have the arms and legs and heads like the the classic sci-fi, but robots are the bots in our machines, the things driving uh, conversation on social media. Those are robots as well. Um, so there are they're here. They're in our cars. All the new cars have uh, drive assists and other assistants that are basically robots. And so I think the challenge for us will, that is coming is how do we interact with these these kinds of technologies that are robotic in that sense? They are they may not have physical arms or those that do because um, they will more and more take part in our everyday life. Um, and how how we deal with issues that arise. Um, and so I'm less concerned that the robots, uh, you know, all the work in AI that we're doing, we're not anywhere close to being worried about the robots taking over. So learning how we can incorporate them without losing ourselves mm. is, is key, exactly. right? Yeah. Which well, is the cognitive piece again, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's it. And I think that that's... Um, you know, part of our message here and part of our goal is in our lives, regardless of if it's robots or patriarchy or somebody else or what our mother says to us is trying not to lose ourselves along the way, right? And staying true to who we are. And I'm so uh, grateful that you, my friend, have um, agreed to do this with us today and share all of your wisdom. And, you know, anybody who knows you, all of our friends would, you know, say that you are a fierce, strong, beautiful woman who, you know, is generous and kind and brilliant. So um, to have you grace our presence on the Afterglow is really a special, a special thing for me. So thank you. Well, thank you. And I, I, it's been a, a real privilege. I've loved watching this organization grow. It's, uh, it's in its in its own a phenomenal uh, place that you've built for for your clients and for your friends and your families. It's uh, so I take my hat off to two incredibly strong, brilliant women in yourselves as well. Thank you, Rhonda. That's a wrap for this episode of The Afterglow. Yet another courageous Canadian sharing her vision. Do us a favor and lift a sister up by sharing this podcast with others who want to find their afterglow. And let us know, what do you want to hear about? Who do you want to hear from? And what is your afterglow? Slide on into our DMs at The Afterglow Podcast Official and leave us a message. Did you love this podcast? Be sure to like and rate us on Spotify and iTunes and wherever you tune in. Until next time.